Hey, this is Kristen. And this is Ashley. And this is A Thousand Miles of True Crime. Hey, Ashley. It's been a minute since we've caught up. How have you been? It's been good. Everything's been a little crazy, but I'm excited to be here recording with you. Yes, same. I am in the same boat, busy and um, ready to get started because this case is a special one. Um, it's, I mean, obviously tragic, like most of the cases that we cover, but it's a special request that we got from our dear friend, May. Um, so yes, she reached out and she's like, Hey, I always wondered what happened to the Hart family murder suicide. So this one's for you, May. Thanks for listening and being a supporter. So, Ashley, I don't know if you've ever heard, or I'm sure you probably have heard of this this case. I mean, this was not that long ago. There were some viral moments related to this particular case. Um, Have you ever heard of the Hart family murder-suicide? Yeah, of course. I know there was a 2020 special, and then I remember there was a podcast series that I listened to. So, I can't wait to... It's been a while, and I do remember I loved this family. So, it was pretty tragic, so... I'm excited for you to dig into all the details. Well, I will say this. I did actually listen to um, another podcast, like just, you know, for information on this case and everything. Um, I highly recommend Broken Hearts if you want to learn more about what happened to this family in 2018. So there's something that's just so absolutely disturbing to me about the tragedy of these eight people that are no longer alive. Um, I I will start with the tumultuous childhood that all six of these children lived through. You know, that was like in their early, early childhood. And then to be adopted by two women who apparently did not have the best intentions for them. Yeah. Tell me everything, Kristen. Well, there's a lot to tell. I was scared this was going to be a a double episode. I really did. There was a lot of information and a lot of content to go over. So um, it was still just, I will just warn you guys, this case involves kids. It's disturbing. Um, There's abuse. And so you've you've been warned. I'll just say that. So this case is about eight individuals that are no longer alive. Okay. Jen... Jennifer Hart and Sarah Hart are two women that, you know, I guess were in a relationship. And when they were in their mid-20s, they decided that they wanted to adopt six African-American kids. Did they adopt all six at once? No, they actually didn't. Okay. Um, They adopted three at one point and then another three um, at later and they were all like siblings. So the first group of three that they adopted and then the second group of three that they adopted. But um, just to kind of give you some backstory on Jennifer and Sarah, they both grew up in South Dakota and they actually met when they were both attending um, NSU and both of them were studying elementary education. So I guess that's maybe what drew them together, um, that they were both interested in educating kids. Um, well, while Jen didn't actually graduate from NSU, Sarah did, um, but neither one of them actually pursued a career related to their degrees. They both just ended up working in retail. When they were living in Minnesota, 
they were working at a store called Hirschberger's. And then later Sarah would end up working at Kohl's. So Jen, she, I mean, after she left retail, she just decided she was going to be a stay-at-home mom. Um, so Sarah would eventually be the only working member in the house. Um, they were both, you know, from like interviews that I watched with their friends, they were both pretty normal um, from those that like knew them from meeting, whether it would would have been at a music festival or a concert um, or a sporting event or something like that. They just seemed like normal people. Jen Hart, she was, I guess, like more of like the headstrong or the like the leader of the two. She was a, a gamer um, and she enjoyed like doing things like gaming online. I guess this game that she played all the time was called Oz. I've never like been into online gaming or anything like that, but uh, I guess people get like serious about this game. Like they're obsessed. Um, and, you know, I think she spent quite a lot of time playing this, this online game called Oz. So Jen is the one who ends up being the stay at home mom. Yes. Jen was a stay at home mom and Sarah was basically the one working, um, pretty much the, the majority of their relationship, especially after they decided to adopt these six children. So I'll get into that. Um, Jen was more of the headstrong one in the relationship. She was, you know, bossy, like, you know, kind of like overbearing or whatnot. And Sarah was definitely more reserved, quiet, or I guess even shy, some would say. So it was like around 2004 when the two of them started like having a conversation of, hey, you know what, maybe we want to think about fostering or adopting some kids. Um, like they were in a relationship. They had already established that they were going to be together. We're in a relationship. We're in love. We're together. And they were kind of like expressing that to the to the world or whatnot or come out fully openly. Um and it's at that point where they decided, you know what, um, we're ready to kind of start a family. So, and I'm just thinking, I'm, you know, a mom of two, you're a mom of one. Can you imagine the, I guess, the lifestyle change of taking on such a huge responsibility at such a young age and without any experience, like, you know, children, <laughs> but I, I, taking on three, that's a big commitment. Yeah, I I mean, I completely agree. When I read that, I was like, that's, I mean, take it easy, like maybe ease into it. But I mean, I, they were, they seemed as though they were up for the challenge because, you know, they, they were having these conversations and both of them were on board for it. So before they actually adopted these six Black kids, in the summer of like 2004, they actually fostered a young 15-year-old Black girl. And, you know, from the interviews that I've read that she did, um, you know, she prefers to like remain anonymous. So like we don't have her, you know, actual name. She's older now. She's in her like mid 20s or something like that now. Um, and in that interview with her, like she was saying, you know, even though her stay with Jen and Sarah was short, she was never, you know, abused physically. Um, she was never, you know, starved or like food or anything like that that was not like ever withheld from her but she does recall stating or I do recall her stating that Jen was like very moody and like kind of like mean um and petty 
just like over like silly small things. Like she would just be irritated with this, uh, their foster daughter. Um, and you know, like she's a teenager, so she's like going through puberty or whatever. And, you know, just trying to figure out who she is and, you know, she's a foster child. So she's got that on her as well. And Jen was just like, I don't know, just petty and and moody and also very controlling. Like the young girl apparently wasn't allowed to really socialize or have friends. She was really just allowed to go to work and go to school. So Jen and Sarah had told their foster daughter, basically, um, we're, we're planning on adopting some more kids, right? Like, you know, that's, that was their plan all along. And so they were sharing that news with their foster daughter or their adopted daughter to say, you know, you're going to be a big sister and like, you know, aren't you excited? And, you know, these are the the kids that we're going to be adopting. And it was like, "Mm, okay. Yeah. Like their foster daughter was obviously excited. Um, And so it turns out the foster daughter was dropped off at a therapist appointment a week or so before they were, Jen and Sarah were preparing to adopt uh, the three kids from Texas and they just left her there. They just left her at her appointment? They just left her there. They took her to a therapy appointment and just left her there. No goodbye, no closure, no, you know, we're going to come back and get you. Like she was really under the impression. I mean, I think that she was going to be with Jen and Sarah until she was 18 and it did not turn out that way. That's like the, one of the coldest things I've ever heard. Yeah. Never said goodbye, never explained the situation, nothing. So I can't imagine like, you know, like coming from a foster um, home that you probably have some type of abandonment issues or there's got to be some undertones of that there. Right. And so the foster daughter, she just, you know, she recalls being devastated and just not understanding what happened. Um, And Jen and Sarah just, they, they knew what they wanted and she wasn't in that plan. So it's really sad. That's really sad. I mean, I just couldn't imagine going through that. And especially because it sounds like they were talking to her about these kids. Like they were coming, like she was going to be a big sister. I mean, they're painting this picture of like our big, happy family. And then, you know, who made that decision that she wouldn't really fit into this big, happy family? Well, there's some, that there's some foreshadowing for you right there, because um, I mean, all these things that uh, these behaviors or these actions that Jen and Sarah were doing to their foster daughter, it just made me feel like there were already a lot of red flags already there. And they maybe even get to do that. Like, I really don't know enough about the the foster system, but you get to just say, "Eh, this isn't really working out anymore. It was fun while it lasted. Like, can somebody come pick her up from her therapist's office? I mean, from, from what I've seen or like, as far as like my research on this case, I feel like, you know, this, that whole system needs a revamp too, because a lot of things, you know, were done that it seems like, like how they adopted the three, the first uh, set of three siblings that they adopted, they adopted them from another state and like more investigation wasn't done into them. I feel like, you know, like they just were like, Oh, these two white ladies, they seem nice. And they seem like they'll be great mothers or parents, you know? And it's like, but they just literally just dropped their first foster child 
off at a therapy appointment and just left her there. Her belong like they knew, like it wasn't just like them just saying, oh no, this isn't working out. They knew like her stuff was already packed and moved to the next location of where she was going to be sent to. So they knew, they just didn't tell her. I want to talk about the three kids that Jen and Sarah adopted, like the story of Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus, and how they became to be in foster care just to begin with, because that in itself is sad. Their biological mother, her name was Tammy, and, you know, she had them when she was pretty young. She, you know, had depression and some mental health issues where she was basically institutionalized for borderline personality disorder. So she had a lot going on. Um, She took her kids to a birthday party. And then Hannah, who was at the time, I think one was bitten by, I guess, ants or something like fire ants, or just that she got like a very bad staph infection, horrible. And to the point where like, when she was taken to the hospital, she had to have like a chunk of skin removed, like not even skin, like a chunk of meat to prevent the infection from getting worse. So that's horrible. So the ants just caused like an open wound and then they didn't take care of it. So she got a staph infection. Yeah, pretty much. And that, I mean, immediately is a red flag to a hospital staff. And so like, they just, they didn't have really have a choice. They reported it to CPS And, you know, while that case was still pending, that happened in 2003. In 2004, while the the kids were still in Tammy's care, um, Hannah apparently got the same girl that had the ant bites, got pneumonia. Um, And this all started from like just, I guess, a respiratory infection. And because Tammy wasn't giving her the medical attention that she needed, it turned into pneumonia. And so then when Tammy took her to the hospital or whatever, the the hospital doctor was like, yo, you have to follow up. Like she has pneumonia. You have to follow up with further treatment, take her, you know, bring her into the hospital if this happens and then follow up. And so when Tammy did not do that, um, basically another case against her was filed um, because she was basically considered medically neglecting her child. So when that happened, Child Protective Services, they just were like, we're taking all your kids. And they placed them in foster care. So, I mean, these are little, little kids. It's, you know, um, Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus, like they're born in 98, 2002, 2003. These these were little kids um, when this stuff happened. So that's that's already sad and heartbreaking tammy i guess was just recognizing you know maybe she wasn't the the best uh parental figure for the kids so she actually just voluntarily signed over her parental rights and it's it's basically in 2006 that's when uh tammy's three kids abigail hannah and marcus were adopted from texas by Jen and Sarah, even though they were actually living in Minnesota. So, because you're telling me no one else in the state of Texas would have been able to adopt those three kids. I think it's hard to put 
kids <laughs> to get kids adopted, especially if they're not babies, especially I hate to say it if they're not white, and especially you're trying to put three kids up for adoption. I'm sure they were like anyone who's willing to take them. Why would why wouldn't they want to contain or keep them? Because Texas is they're they're funding, you know, the uh what it's going to require to take care of these kids. Like the Jen and Sarah, they were getting like stipends, they were getting um monies to take care of these kids after they officially adopted them. And so it's like they're not even in the state of Texas for for any type of monitoring to be done, any type of checks to be done. So I don't know. I just, I thought that that was strange. I'm trying, everybody that I know who's adopted isn't, they they were moved out of state or out of country. So Really? Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it. Dang. Yeah. I do want to talk now about Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra. These are the other three children that Jen and Sarah would adopt in 2008. So Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra, their biological mother's name was Sherry. And Sherry had some serious substance abuse issues. And um, she, I mean, it it was full-on neglect. Like, they were like, absolutely not. These kids need to be taken away from the mother. The father isn't um, actively in their lives. So, like, she just was immediately out of the picture. And so the father's aunt I'm sorry the father's sister her name was Priscilla she was like had her shit together and she's just like you know what I want to keep these kids with the family so I'm gonna go ahead and advocate for um adopting them and so she went above and beyond like she um got a bigger house to be able to accommodate these three kids and even though she was older like she was really putting forth the effort to keep these kids within the family instead of them going into foster care. Unfortunately, she got called into work on an off day and she was like, oh, like, what am I going to do? I've got to go in and I've got these kids here. And so she ended up calling and having the kids' mother, Sherry, watch them so that she could go to work like for just one shift. And so on that day, apparently CPS or, um, there was a home visit or something like that done and they witnessed that Sherry was there with the kids. And that was like one, one of the major stipulations that the court mandated that like, absolutely not. These kids can have zero contact with their mother because of her substance issues. And so without warning or anything like that, without like, you know, this is just a warning, you know, if this happens again, or, you know, they just took the kids away and put them in foster care. Yeah. So the whole, you know, system, as far as adoption um, agencies and CPS, like, I feel like they all need to get their shit together. Um, Adoption reform should definitely be reconsidered. Um, I just, I really can't understand how Jen and Sarah were able to abandon their adopted daughter or their foster daughter and then right away adopt three more kids. They're just like, we don't want her anymore or whatever excuse they came up with. In 2008, so she had already had the other three kids, Devante, um, Jeremiah, and Sierra. 
In 2008, that's when some reports of abuse were being reported by the school to the six adopted children. Um, was it I, physical abuse? It was, it's, it was more than just physical abuse. Hannah apparently had visible bruises on her and, you know, she actually informed school staff and she's like, you know, my mom, she, she hit me with her belt and that was in 2008. So it's like, well, what happened with that? Like what I know the school is like mandated to report that, um, to child protective services or whoever. And nothing ever came of that report. Like they ended up, I guess, interviewing the kids. I don't know if it was that they were just too little or, that, you know, they just, nothing came of it. There wasn't any consequence for that case being filed. So that's when they were living in Minnesota. And this seemed to create a pattern for Jen and Sarah when someone would report something bad that they had done. If um, an allegation of some sort was made against them or like a family member was disagreeing with how they were parenting or even a friend, they would just shut people out and just pick up and leave, like move physically, just we're going to move. After this report in 2008, Jen and Sarah were like, you know what? We're just going to pull the kids out of school. We're going to pull them out of school. We did. Now, these are children that Jen and Sarah were, I guess, sharing with their friends or their people that were introduced to the children. They were saying, oh, these kids are drug babies. They come from like um, parents that had mental health issues and things like that. So like they were just really, I guess, shitting on these kids as far as like their, uh, their background and where they came from. And whether it's true or not, but like, who does that? These are supposed to be your kids. These are supposed to be people that you love on and that you care about. And you're just telling other people that they're drug babies and they're developmentally delayed and all this other stuff. I just thought that that was really messed up. And I didn't understand, like, why would you do something like that? Um, and are they claim, are they saying all this because they're claiming like that's why we had to take them out of school because they need extra attention and yeah but I'm just I wondering mean, is this like a look at me I'm a hero I adopted these crack babies and now I'm gonna devote my life to educating them is it really is it more of that oh yeah it's it's almost like that whole savior that white savior thing of like oh you know like look at what we're doing um and then too it was a lot of like look at me because even though um you know they were Jen and Sarah were kind of like isolating themselves and like not in communication even with their own immediate families like they had no relationships with their moms and dads and siblings for like years um it's like they, they did seem to seek attention or like present things on social media once they had all these kids as, as it being something that it really wasn't. And that was frustrating. That was like, you guys are like, you guys are just, it's all of a sad. It's not real. You know, this isn't really how you guys are really living. But I, I thought it was just horrible that they were just telling people that these were drug babies and ugh, like, 
who does that? Um, I also like questioned or, or like didn't understand why the school didn't like follow up after the abuse allegation. I mean, the, the Hannah said she verbalized that she was being physically hit. There were physical bruises on her. And even though CPS didn't do anything, I just didn't understand why once the kids were pulled out of school, the school didn't re-engage with CPS and say, hey, you know, we reported something to you guys and you guys, you know, found nothing out about it. But now the kids are are pulled from school. So well, I think they can look uh, just thinking from the school's perspective, like if, if truly like I, I already put it in their hands and, and they said nothing was wrong. Like they might, you know, they might be afraid they're going to get sued or something like they're already pulling the kids out of the school, probably because of this incident. I'm sure they were very suspicious and were concerned about their children that they might have just felt like their hands were tied. Like they already followed all the proper procedures. Proper procedures or not like these six kids, they're dead. They're dead because so many people just kind of were like, Oh, well, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. And, you know, I don't want to say anything to upset anybody or, you know, this isn't my business. And I, I mean, I get it. Like a lot of people don't want to get involved. Um, but geez like especially also like there's clear signs like you said there was physical bruises like or visible bruises I mean I haven't even gotten to the worst honey um so the kids that was in 2008 when that happened and then the kids were homeschooled until 2009 and I guess Jen and Sarah were like okay this is too much maybe I don't know but they were like we're gonna re-enroll them back in school so they did and then in 2010 another report of some insane abuse was reported. And this just really hurt my head to even read about, think about, because I think about kids and I think about punishment and I, this was just next level. Okay. So Abigail is one of the younger girls, the younger daughters. And apparently she had a penny. Okay. A penny. Like how many times have you like, Found a penny on the ground, found a penny in the couch, the car, whatever, um, a penny, one cent. And so apparently Jen and Sarah thought she stole this penny. Okay, so they were questioning her. Where did she get the penny, the penny from? And her punishment was that they held her head under cold water and they hit her. What? Like, I'm trying to think what that would be an acceptable punishment. That's not. That's like, what is this the damn military? No. A penny? Right. I mean, is she a prisoner of war? Like, I'm very confused. In 2010. But she's eight. That's fucking ridiculous. I'm sorry. That's ridiculous. Yeah, Again, not if she was. I don't think it would have been an acceptable punishment if she was eighteen, but eight years old. I, I like it. That to me, just I was like, really. So that is reported right in twenty ten, and so this is now like a huge issue. Um, CPS comes back out now. Granted, this is not the first incident. This is the second reported incident. And I believe it's not just the second. Like in 2008, there were multiple reports, but like nothing ever came about. 
So in 2010, this happens and CPS comes out and they interview the kids and Jen, um, she didn't admit to doing anything, even though Hannah was basically saying Jen was the one that did this and that Sarah helped, but that Jen was like the leader of this type of these types of tactics or abuse that they were experiencing. And does that mean that like she helped hold her down kind of thing, or does that mean she just didn't stop her? She both, it was all of the above. She was, she contributed to the hitting as she was being held underwater. Um, And I mean, I want to make it clear. It's not been confirmed or like, I haven't been able to clarify if both Jen and Sarah adopted these kids, but one takes the fall almost every time that an incident comes up. And I just didn't understand why that was. Was that because if she was the one that, you know, if Sarah was the one that incurred the abuse, the kids wouldn't get taken away because Jen was the like legal guardian of them or something. I don't know, but that was also something. I would, I would be surprised if it wasn't both of them. Cause they're, first of all, they're married, right? Sarah had her name legally changed into like, to like, they went to Connecticut and they just were like, oh, we're going to change our names because where they lived at that time, um, gay marriage was not legal. Because we like briefly looked into adoption and they said it would be very hard because we weren't married or significantly harder. So I'm surprised that she like that she was able to just do it as one, you know what I mean? As one person, six kids. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I'm wondering too, because she, Jen wasn't really working. So it's like, granted, yeah, you're going to get some subsidies and some monies or stipends for adopting these kids, but it's not going to be enough to like live off of. Right. So I would think, yeah, maybe it was both of them, but I have not been able to like confirm that. So in 2010, when this report comes in and CPS comes out and they're interviewing the kids, they all say, you know, we're being spanked, we're being grounded. Um, and this is to me probably the worst. Well, no, they're all bad. They were being starved, they were having food withheld from them, like as punishment, and not just like a meal or like a snack or like water, but like, like they weren't given anything for like full days. And I just was like, that's messed up. In all my years as like a a kid, I've never been deprived of food. In all my years as a mother, I would never deprive my kids of food. I just don't understand. I think that that's an unspeakable punishment. And if you use this on your children, shame on you, but shit, like, come on. These kids had already been through so much. Yeah. Like taking away a necessity. I want to talk about Jen a little bit. Um, Like I was saying, she's a stay-at-home mom, right? And she spends a lot of time on this game, Oz. Um, Sarah's the breadwinner, aside from the $400 to $600 per child that they're getting, Sarah's still working at Kohl's and I just, I'm trying to figure out like 
how did they afford raising six kids um, on on an income like that? But wait, so they were getting four hundred per at least four hundred per month per kid. Yes. So and then to some additional monies from like I think social security for two of the kids. Okay, so so we're probably looking at about twenty six hundred a month from that and then whatever she's getting from Kohl's. Sarah ended up taking the fall for it. She's like, she admitted to doing it and she ended up getting assault charges, charged with assault and also probation. She was put on probation for like a year. So they couldn't go anywhere. But like, as soon as she was off probation, she was like, I'm out. We're, we're out. We're taking the kids and we're going to do the same thing that we always do whenever something like this happens, which is, move to another state um, because, you know, that's those people, people can't follow a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's how, cause the stuff doesn't travel. Also, I just, so I looked it up. Mm-hmm. So it says the average manager at Kohl's makes about 45,000. Okay. So it's still not easy with six kids, but no, it's sounding a little more doable, but Especially I also, if you're not feeding them. That unfortunately saves a lot of money. <laughs> Actually, that's terrible. Maybe um, that's real. Yeah. It's, I don't know what Jen's intentions were, but. I just, I didn't understand. And then I, you know, this is kind of like off topic or whatnot, but I listened to an interview with one of the people that she was playing this like game with or whatever. And this person was saying that she was spending so much time on the game. There's no way she was able to care for six kids. So they're homeschooled right quote unquote homeschooled and while all this is going on and she's not probably like giving them any attention whatsoever but then it's like why do you want the kids like just if you're if you don't care why do you want the kids is this just for show that was what just completely frustrated me and who was the big one on social media was it both of them it was Jen. Sarah, she was just super reserved, super kind of just laid back, chill. Um, and then too, she was just gone all the time. But Jen was the one that was like really focused on like propping, like setting the kids up like props. Like they were like objects in her life. And like that, like she had like no emotional attachment to them. To me, it seemed the interviews with like the people that were friends with them, they're like, no, you know, she loved her children and all we saw was love, but it was like, no, she had other friends that thought the complete opposite and even reported her to CPS. So I, I mean, I don't know. Really quick side note, because we do have a lot of listeners outside of the U S CPS stands for children. Child Protective Services, right? Child Protective Services. Okay. All in all, too, it's also the same time Sarah and Jen are trying to have their own baby. Like, they're like, well, let's add seven, a seventh to the mix, right? I always um, ask myself this, too, because they didn't end up, like, it didn't come to fruition or whatever, Um you know, they like let their family know, like we're trying, but then it it just didn't pan out. Um, I don't understand. Or I, I guess I like wonder, had they been able to successfully conceive, would they have just gotten rid of all six of these other kids 
like how they did with the first foster kid like that. I wonder about that. And then too, like, I, I, I don't know, like this just, it stayed in my brain. Like, would they have acted out like their extreme punishments if these were their own biological children? Like, were they just evil and mean and like psycho or were like, were they just doing this because they had, these weren't their biological children? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like at least with Jen, she's just has like this really controlling, abusive mentality. Yeah. Like this. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's a chance even if she had a kid, she would have been the same way, probably not as harsh or that child probably would have gotten some special treatment, but I don't think she would have just like completely shut it off and been like the perfect mom. Yeah. I mean, on the surface and social media, like you brought that up because you recall that from what you know of this, this case, they just, they, they acted as though life was perfect. And because they ostracized everybody and like isolated themselves, no one really knew other than what Jen was posting on social media. So of course they're like, Oh, they're perfect. And you know, they are the perfect family and they're so awesome for taking in these six black kids. I, um, but it was, a, it was a joke. It was like an act. It wasn't real. Um, life was not perfect the way that Jen and Sarah made it seem online. Sarah, she takes the assault charges, um, and like the kids weren't removed. Nothing happened. She just got probation. And then after that year, they decided we're going to go ahead and, and move to Oregon. After the allegation in 2010, um, after Jen, I'm sorry, after Sarah is off of probation, I'm sorry, they decide to homeschool the kids again. So all six kids were pulled out in 2011 and they never returned back to school. And I'm assuming that they weren't in a bunch of af- like extra activities where they were around other kids or no. taking them to soccer practice as well. No, no. I mean, I guess their recreational activities were music festivals um, and sporting events, I guess. Um, but like they didn't have a TV. They were like living this apparently this nature filled life. Like they would just live out on the lamb. I, I, I feel like too, it seems like they possibly withdrew the kids from school because of the fear of what, um, like what else the kids might say to expose about what was happening at home. So they're just like, you know what? We're done. We're going to pull them out and they're not going back. In 2013, they decided to move to Portland, Oregon. Um, um, And it's around this time, uh, their family actually garnered some media attention. And I don't know, like, do you recall the the Black Lives Matter protest that took place in 2014? Um, It was like a murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson. Do you remember that? Yeah, I, I actually do remember that. Okay, so there's a picture that was taken with one of the Heart Kids, uh, Devante, actually, that went viral. And so 
I, I mean, there were, it was a, prof, a picture taken by a professional photographer that was there just like um, covering the protest, but in Portland. So people were protesting in Orland, um, Portland for what was happening in Ferguson. And Missouri, so, right? Like it was right outside of St. Louis. Yeah. And so um, this picture that was taken was of Devante hugging a police officer. And so, you know, the, here's this young black kid um, hugging a white police officer. And the reason the picture went viral is because of all the tensions that are still going on today, um, but definitely were heightened at that, at that time. They, you know, it got a lot of, it garnered a lot of attention, like so much so that like people were like wanting to interview Devante and like have him bring him on a TV show. Um, and so for Jen and Sarah, this was a tension that they did not want. Like they didn't want um, to be in the limelight, apparently in that regard, where like they're completely exposed. Um, so they like declined all the the offers for um, like TV shows or whatever that came after this picture went viral. And that made me wonder, like Jen, Jen said, like they received a lot of backlash or, um, negative attention because of this photo, but like, there was like no proof of that. Like there was, you know, they said they received death threats and stuff like that, but there was no actual proof. So I didn't understand was Jen just using that to kind of keep the kids from being around someone to share what, what was happening to them at home or whatever. Um, but she actually, Jen actually took a hiatus from social media for like six months. Cause she was like, you know, I'm just going to pull away. Like this is, there's too much going on. Um, but then six months later she jumps back on and she's on there like posting all the time. Like everything is fine. I'm really surprised. Like, I thought she would have taken full advantage of this opportunity since it sounds like she's kind of living this life online anyways. But no. Well, I guess that takes it off of being out, you know, not online anymore. Now you have to actually go meet with reporters and stuff. Can't yeah, I feel like she had more control by not being, like, physically in person. Like, you can be whoever you want on social media. You can, you know... You, you can pretend you can like put on a mask and a facade, like no one's sitting out there on social media, um, like intentionally just posting the most depressing things or whatever, whatever troubles that they're dealing with in life. Like she was really, really focused on making it look as though her life was perfect with her family. And it just was not like, it totally was not the media attention thing she was completely turned off by it. And then what do you think that they do again now, because of all this attention that they're getting in Portland, they're trying to run away from that. So they decide they're going to move again. And this time they had to Woodland, Washington like in the country, you know, rent, renting this house in Woodland, Washington. We moved so much. And they're not yeah. even moving like to a different county. They're moving to different states. Yeah, definitely um, running from something. So the kids, like I said, they're still being um, homeschooled and 
Um, they moved to this house in Woodland, Washington, and their neighbors are actually super eager to meet them because they're like, oh, there's six black kids and these two lesbians. Oh, like we're really curious to like see who the these this family is and, and meet them. Um, and so their neighbors are named the DeKalbs, uh, Dana and Bruce DeKalb. So the decals were like eager to meet their neighbors, but they didn't actually get to have a formal intro- introduction to the Hart family as they like probably wanted. They mentioned in their interview that they found it strange that, you know, they see six kids living at this house and there's all this land and they supposedly have this garden, uh, but they say they never see the kids outside. They you know, they only see the kids when they return home from somewhere or they're leaving to go somewhere. And they were like little soldiers, like no, it didn't seem like they horsed around or like played catch in the yard or anything, like nothing normal kids of that age do. And they they thought that was strange. Um, it feels like that's one of the main reasons you moved to the country, right? Or to like yeah, a like area to, is so that your kids can just go out and play and Yeah. And I mean, they were big on nature. So it's like, well, why aren't they outside? If you're saying on social media, Jen, that, you know, they're big um, into nature and, you know, like granted, yes, there were photos and videos of them hiking and things like that. But it's like this family lived right next door to you. And they're saying they rarely ever saw these kids leave the house. Like they were inside blinds drawn and, you know, like it was like no one really lived there. So either Jen ran like a super tight ship or she was just inside like playing that damn game and just wasn't really focusing on the kids. She was, they were just there. As so the DeGalbs would actually get an informal introduction to the family. In the summer of 2017, Hannah actually frantically runs over to the DeKalb's house after jumping out of the second story window of her house And she's desperately pleading and begging them to let her in their home. It's like 1.30 in the morning. Bruce, the husband, like he opens the door and he's like, like, who is this little girl? Like, like, is this the neighbor's daughter or whatever? And he's looking at her like she she doesn't have front teeth. And like, is she like seven? Like, how old is this little girl? So he calls his wife, Dana, down and, you know, she comes down and she's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, are you okay? And Hannah is like saying, you know, they're, they're abusing us over there and they're starving us over there and they're racist. And, you know, like, please don't make me go back there. Like she's pleading with these, this couple to not like, let let make her go back home and so they're like what is going on like you know so they're trying to I guess calm her down she runs up into their bedroom and is like hiding behind the bed like she's terrified she's in the fetal position and everything Hannah is 15 years old at this time but the decals they couldn't tell one because she was missing her front teeth and two because she was so incredibly small So I had to look up a picture. And when I tell you there is, I mean, it's, it's obvious. Some, they were not feeding these kids. 
she looks like a like it's she does not look like a teenager and then two i also was trying to figure out why didn't she have two front teeth if she's 15 years old like granted i know like kids you know they're you know eat like crap or whatever but she lost her teeth in 2012 I found on Jen's Facebook that apparently she was running in the house and lost her teeth. Like she fell. But there was an actual picture of the tooth, right? And so the picture of the tooth had the root and everything, almost as if it was pulled out. Oh my God. I hope they didn't pull her tooth out. I mean... How do you go from 2012 to 2017 and you're 15 in 2017 and you don't have teeth? You don't have front teeth. Now, granted, yeah, they're not in school. She's not around anybody because they keep them in the house. But still, she was very small, very frail, and she didn't have her two front teeth. And I understand someone looking younger, but you're saying they're they're questioning if she's eight years old. I mean... That's, you know, she's small then. Yeah. I mean, it's the picture that I saw. I was like, there's no, like, she looks like she's, she doesn't even look like she's six or seven. Like she looks like a a very small child, like a toddler, crazy, crazy small. And I mean, the, her brothers, I mean, all of them were significantly smaller than what I guess they should have been. Had they been given a proper diet or what whatnot and weren't being starved, but still, uh so anybody, that, guess- anybody that would have seen these kids would have known something was wrong. And then two, Jen and Sarah seem to always have an explanation as to why they were so small. Oh, well, they're they're drug babies and you know, or we're they're on a strict diet or like eating organic foods and shit like that. I mean, they they knew exactly what they were doing. And it, I guess it's safe to say that they were not going to the doctor. I mean, if if I take my 12-year-old, I've got a 12-year-old. If I take my 12-year-old to the doctor and he doesn't have his front two teeth, my doctor, the doctor's going to be looking at me like, really? And if my son looks malnourished, I'm pretty sure, yeah, they were not getting medical attention. So back to the DeKalb story. So the DeKalbs, they noticed, you know, all right, we're going to like take this little girl in. Maybe we'll call the authorities or whatever. Um, and then they realize that the Hart family is out in the woods because they're in like a wooded area. Like how their houses were, it was like a fork in the road. So you go to the left, it was the decals. You go to the right, it was the hearts. So they noticed that the Hart family is walking through the woods, screaming Hannah's name and so the husband, Bruce, he calls out and he's like, hey, Hannah's at our house. So Jen and Sarah come over there and they like barge into the DeKalb house. They're like, where's our daughter? Like, just like, you know, like it's their their home or something like that. And um, they storm upstairs and find her in the bedroom hiding in the fetal position. And so Dana, the DeKalb wife, She's like, you know, like what's going on? Like your, you know, your daughter's made some, some statements about what's going on at home. Like what's, what's going on? They're like, well, we want to just talk to our daughter. 
I guess Jen took the lead again and was like, Sarah, you take the other kids back home or whatever. I'll handle this situation here and get Hannah back home with us. And so Dana's like, you know, like, is everything okay? Like what's going on? And Jen tells this woman that um, Hannah's like a drug baby and her mother was bipolar. So like she's had a rough day. So she manages to get Jen manages to get Hannah out of the house. Right. And not only that, as they're on their way out, um, she's like coercing Hannah into apologizing for bothering this family in the middle of the night. Now the family's like, like they're like completely caught off guard. They're like, what just happened? Like a, a little girl jumped out of a window, ran over here. She didn't have any teeth. She's told us that, you know, um, she was being beaten and, you know, she was being um, starved and that they were racist. But the DeKalb family, they didn't listen to Hannah. They should have listened to Hannah. They should have believed what she was saying. And I I know they regret it because Dana has said it um, on interviews, but, um, you know, when I get ready to post the photos and I show you what Hannah looked like, you will not believe it. You will be like, that is insane. Um, so and at the this, time, did they know she was 15? I mean, obviously when she came over, they didn't think that, but at some point did they, at that night, did they know she was 15? No. I have to think too, if you think she's that young, I mean, when I was young, I was kind of like scared to go outside at night. I think I'd be afraid to run to the neighbor's house. And my neighbor was like four block, like four feet away. It wasn't like run through the woods kind of situation. Like that seems like it would probably be scary at 15. Like, and they think she's a lot younger. Well, I think just jumping out of a window, jumping out of a window, like forget running in the woods to, you gotta be pretty terrified to jump out of the window of a, a second story house. And yeah, that's insane. I, I mean, they must kind of not believe that's true if they're letting her go back. You know what I mean? But that's the thing. I mean, they probably just were like, well, we're just not going to get involved. We don't really know what's really going on over there. We know it's kind of strange or fishy or whatever, but they probably were just like, we're not going to get involved. Um, and I've seen that, like, have you ever been or been a witness to like some type of abuse happening, whether it's domestic or I've, I've seen it and I've seen people just kind of turn away as if, you know, it's not happening. Um, so maybe it was a bit of that, but after this incident, the decals are now even more curious of what's going on over there. Um, so like more strange things started happening. Um, after Hannah, you know, does this Devante, who is one of the older boys too. Um, he started secretly sneaking over to the DeKalb home and asking them for food. I mean that she had, Hannah had already mentioned, Hey, they're not feeding us. They're starving us. They're beating us or whatever. And I know it's like a child's first thought to like, if they were making this up truly, right. They're going to be like, oh, she was beating us with a belt or something like that. I don't think you're instantly going to go to, we're, we're being starved. And then have your siblings collaborate, you know, get in on the, 
the lie. That doesn't make sense. But the starvation accusation or allegation or reality that had been happening from the beginning, all the way in 2008, they were saying that, you know, these kids, they were hungry. They were asking other kids for food. Someone made the statement that they were eating out of the garbage. I don't know if that is actually true, but it was like, that's been a claim from the beginning. And if you look at pictures and photos of these kids and you know their ages, there's no question. Like the answer is right there. They're definitely not corroborating stories. Like they're just, they're being starved. Yeah. They're just trying to get food. Yeah. So I, but it's, it's hard. It's unclear what Devante's intentions were by asking the DeKalb's for food because it was like, well, are you, because he was like, not just asking for food, like for himself. He was asking for like bread and tortillas and like, so she gave him like a stack of like bulk when you buy tortillas in bulk. So like, like a lot of tortillas and he came back and was like, I need more. And so um, she's probably thinking like, is like, are they like trying to like save up food? Cause they're going to run away or whatever. Um, Dana was like, she was alarmed at this point. She still at this point had not made a call to CPS or the police or anything like that. Um, but she did end up sharing the incident that happened where Hannah came over to her house in the middle of the night. She shared that story with her father and her dad was like, I'm calling the police. I'm going to call the police. But guess what? The police didn't do anything. He made the call to the police. That's all recorded and documented. But the welfare check wasn't made until it was too late. It was like other calls were coming in from other people. Um, I mean, wait, so you so you're telling me somebody was supposed to go out and follow up on this. They just didn't have enough time. Yeah. There wasn't uh, a wellness check done when Dana's father put in the call to uh, have a wellness check. Like he said the whole thing. So it wasn't like, oh, can you send a wellness check out to uh, this address with no other information? No. He was like, these kids are being, something's going on. Something's not right. Something's happening over there to these kids. But nothing came you know, it was too late by the time um, authorities got involved. So, and and Jen and Sarah, they're there. They knew what was next, right? They knew, hey, we've got allegations in, or we've got case, multiple cases against us in Minnesota. We've got multiple cases against us in Washington. We, uh, we've got multiple cases against us in Oregon. So now, now what? Like, are we just going to keep going? Or at this point, if, you know, Child Protective Services catches wind of what just happened where Hannah, you know, jumped out of the window, she doesn't have teeth, they, you know, they go and they do this wellness visit. CPS, too, also, they haven't been able to do their own visits that they do, right, on the adopted kids. So they reached out to the police. But all this I mean, all those reach outs were, it was too late. The Jen and Sarah and the kids, they had already left. 
Washington and started heading towards California. Because I think they knew that the DeKalbs were going to tell what happened and they knew that there was going to be no way to talk themselves out of that. Anyone in their right mind would report that. I think they they recognized that and they were like, mm, you know what? We, we just got to bail. We got to get out of here. Um, all the cops at night. I would have been terrified for that little girl. Yeah. We'll unfortunately actually never know exactly like what happened to the kids in that house or like all the abuse or whatever that was going on besides like the withholding of the food and the spankings and the groundings and all that. Um, because there were literally six years of these kids not being in a class, not being checked on um, by, you know, anyone. The only, the only time these people, these kids got out was when Jen and Sarah wanted to get them out. And I just don't know how often that really was um, after 2011. I think that Jen and Sarah also had so much like practice portraying who they wanted other people to see. Like they, they were trying to figure out what they were going to do as they're leaving Washington. Like, how are we going to talk our way out of this? How are we going to, going to figure this out? And they realized that they couldn't. So CPS was uh, trying to reach the family um, unsuccessfully. So they put in a call to the police to do a wellness check. That was on March the 24th. Um, like I was saying, the hearts had already left their house in Washington and March 25th is the last time that there was actually evidence that the hearts were alive because Jen stopped at a Safeway, like drugstore, like stop or whatever near Mendocino, California. And that was like the last video footage of Jen Hart. She was in the store by herself. There weren't any kids with her. Sarah wasn't with her. But, you know, she bought like bananas and looked normal, like nothing looked out of the ordinary in that video. But on March the 26th, Jen and Sarah decided to give all six children large doses of Benadryl. Sarah took um, some Benadryl also. Jen, who wasn't a drinker, she, I guess, needed some liquid courage to be able to do what she was about to do. Um, because, you know, her, her tox report showed that, you know, the alcohol in her system was well over the limit, but she didn't actually take any Benadryl. Um, and then Jen drove their car with all eight of them off of a 100 foot cliff in Mendocino, California. And they know that this was an intentional incident because initially, I guess when this first happened, um, they weren't sure, like they couldn't identify like the cause of this, like, was this intentional? Was this accidental? Um, but after a year's investigation, because that's basically how long they were sorting through everything and touching base with all these other states where all these other cases were and lining everything up, it turns out these, these uh, agencies were not like communicating with each other. Like this information should have been passed along and those kids should have been removed from their care long before this, all this stuff happened. Also the black box that was inside of the, the car that they were driving, it indicated that when the car, like the last speed that the car went 
as it's going um, off the cliff, the brakes were not used at all. So like she like she like floored it off the cliff. Um, and it's I mean it's hard to say like if you know they said that they gave the the kids had so much the kids of the bodies that they found had large amounts of this antihistamine in their systems. So I'm hoping that they were unconscious at the time just, of impact. Proved, but That just proves though how premeditated it was, you know, oh. it wasn't like she was driving and was like, like, I just can't do this. I should end my whole family's life. Here's a cliff. Like, I mean, you had to stop, you had to buy the Benadryl. You had to, you know, give it to them. Well, there was more too, because it was that like, well, how, like, how are we going to identify if it was premeditated, premeditated? And it turns out Sarah's phone browser history, she was actually Googling whether or not Benadryl could kill a 125 pound woman. Like how much would you need to ingest? She was Googling, um, about hypothermia and drowning, how long it takes to die, like right before this happened. So that's how they came to that conclusion. They're like, you know, initially all these people are like devastated and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, they were such a perfect family. And then come to find out, no, they were not. They were horrible fucking people. They were doing some pretty sick things. And then who's to say, like, I could not bring myself to understand why, you know, if you're a, a fucked up individual, okay, run that car off the cliff. But to take six kids with you that you already like basically put them, you know, through all this trauma, let them go, right? No. I think that there was a lot more abuse done to those kids that we'll never know. And that is really, really messed up. And I think that that's why they took them with them. I don't know how they were able to convince them to take the Benadryl, but... What do you mean convince them? Like, I'm sure they just forced them. Like, this is like years and years of abuse. I'm sure those kids were... They would just do what they were told. I also... It's horrible to say, but I really hope they were passed out and that they weren't sitting there listening to their moms have this conversation about... It says we it's going to take two minutes to drown or... You know what I mean? Anything like that. Yeah. After those horrible Google searches. I, I don't know. We'll never know. We'll never know. Um, of the six children, uh, Devante's remains uh, were the only ones that to this day have not been recovered. So, I mean, they presume that, you know, he is deceased and that he was in the vehicle at the time of the crash, but I just cannot comprehend it. I am just utterly speechless at what these you know, how this ended and ugh, just the whole thing. And are there like any theories out there about where his body is? Like, did, do they think it's normal? Did they land in water then? Is that what you're saying? They went off the cliff. So they landed in the, they landed near water. So it was like rocky, but the water was also right there um, because some of the bodies did drift into the water, whether they were ejected from the vehicle at, you know, impact or, um, like if it was just because time had passed and their body like fell into the water, um, there were theories that Devante wasn't in the car at all, that, you know, he's alive and well somewhere just, but it's, it's not likely. I would say there was another theory that they killed 
that Jen and Sarah like did something to some of the kids. And that's like why their entire bodies were not found. Like they would find, you know, they found a foot um, or something like that. Like they, they will never know. (laughs) We'll never know. We'll never know. And then too, I mean, um, from like decomposition, the bodies from being in the water and stuff like that, from the bodies, the two of the bodies that they found in the water, it was like, it's like, how can you prove anything now? How can you identify what type of abuse or trauma these kids may have experienced because now their bodies are just like decomposed basically. Oh, horrifying. So May, this one really was, uh, I mean, it hurt to, to research and learn what what happened with these kids and everything, but, um, yeah, we love yeah. you, May, but we might not be doing your next recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> well, she just, course. she just wanted to know, because I think in 2018, when all this, like, uh, like the, the drive off the cliff happened and everything, I just think that, I don't know, like if people followed up with the outcome afterwards, you know, of, guess what? These women were not perfect and they actually intentionally did this. Like, I don't know. I remember the news article is like everything originally being about this boy who became this internet sensation and like what happened? How did this murder suicide happen? Or like, how did they all die? But there was none of this like abuse and years and years of running from the log to try to hide this abuse and none of that. I hadn't heard any of that when it all first happened. Yeah. Well, the story's out. (laughs) So Sarah and Jen, I, you know, I think that they wanted to live like this imaginary life of doing whatever that, you know, Jen was doing whatever she wanted to do. And they wanted it on the surface to look as, to appear as something that it wasn't. And I don't know. I think they were both delusional. I mean, Jen sounds like she has a lot of tendencies, like a cult leader, except for she wasn't really powerful enough to control adults. So she had to control, unfortunately, these little children that she actually had control over legally, you know? So I, yeah, it's just a horrible abuse of power. Oh, I love that analogy that you just gave of, of Jen. So yeah. We'll end it with that, Ashley, and your gracious words. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kristen and May. This was a great episode and just so sad. I, I'm done. I want to go to bed. This is horrible. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, guys. Hope you're not going to bed right after listening to this. Yeah. Um, but again, like as usual, we appreciate you guys for listening. Continue to love, I'm sorry, continue to rate and review us and all fives, please share, subscribe, you know, the whole nine. Yeah. Tell a friend, please. We love you guys. Thank you so much. All right. We're out.